Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 241, Haston. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Right now, members are hearing about what The Last Kingdom got right and wrong in Season 1. And we're releasing them fast and furious, so that way you'll be all caught up when Season 2 releases on Netflix. And spoiler alert, while they do get some stuff wrong, they also get some really esoteric stuff right. Here's a sample. I kept seeing as I was watching this, they would they have these cool like pan shots through the village. Yeah. And I kept seeing these pigs that look like sheep, like sheep pigs. They're woolly <laughs> pig sheep. I've never seen such a thing before. And I was really like, really curly hair, really curly hair. Yeah. They literally look like pig sheep. So I was like, that's what is that? So I looked that up and apparently it's this very specific breed that hangs out in Eastern Europe. They're called um, Mangalica, okay. which sounds like something that's sci-fi. I'm probably just pronouncing it wrong. But then I saw that the only other curly-haired pig in existence is actually an extinct ancient breed of pig that existed in England <laughs> called the Lincolnshire curly coat. But these were actually the pigs that you would have seen back then. They're one of the oldest breeds that lived in Britain. They were would have been one of the more prolific breeds. They've gone extinct just in this last century because they weren't being bred anymore. So someone cared enough to make sure that there were curly-haired pigs in the establishment shots. That's the funny thing, right? Like there's like the shields would be hundred percent wrong, but the pigs are hundred percent right. Right. That's the thing <laughs> where you're you're left being like, okay, there must be separate groups handling different things, and the person who's handling weapons and armor is just asleep at the wheel. Well, it just it's they're just. They're an old Lord of the Rings prop guy, and they just brought him over with a bunch of his old stuff. And meanwhile, the equestrian is, I don't know what the f*** ever. But, but then you have, like, the, the third string historian who's like, well, we're going to make sure that pig is right. So, yeah, Z and I really like the show, and we're having a lot of fun digging into the odd little Easter eggs that they're putting in there. And you can get instant access to those episodes and all the other members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for less than the price of a pack of bacon per month. And thank you very much to Katharina, William, and Nicholas for signing up already. What was Alfred's reaction to the news that a massive Viking fleet had crossed the channel? Was it surprise? Or did he just expect it at this point? Was he angry that he'd have to fight one more time for his kingdom? Based upon his apparent devotion, I imagine that he wondered what he had done to invite yet another test of his faith in the form of bristling warships. But in truth, there was nothing he could have done. The Danes were, in many respects, like a natural disaster, but in the case of this fleet, what was launching towards the shores of Wessex was the result of an actual natural disaster. See, the thing is that in the early 890s, things were looking good. As we talked about last episode, the Franks had two back-to-back -back victories over the Viking army. And as a result, they were in relatively a fantastic position against these pirates. Things were looking better than they'd been looking for years. But suddenly, without warning, in the spring of 892, the fields of northeastern Francia were struck with a blight. Now, Danes were one thing, but you can't muster an army to fight famine, and that was what was raging throughout the countryside. And the only silver lining to this cloud was the fact that an extreme famine like this tends to hit virtually everyone, 
which meant that it wasn't just the Franks who were starving. So were the Danes. This massive army suddenly had reason to want to leave. And for their part, the Franks were only too happy to help them. And that is how the Vikings acquired those 250 ships at Boulogne. They didn't construct them. They didn't bring them along for their raids and then keep them safely tucked away for just this occasion. No, these ships were gifts from the Franks. And I can't help but wonder if early reports of these Frankish ships had Alfred thinking that his kingdom, having survived relentless Viking attacks, was now going to have to endure a war against the Franks. But any fears of that would have vanished as soon as the ships closed in on the Weald. Their ships may have been Frankish, but these were Danes. And Alfred knew how to handle Danes. But these details, the history of this army, the economic situation in Europe, and the failed crops, they all explain what's happening here. Far too often, I'll browse pop history books, or watch documentaries, or even listen to podcasts, and inevitably, I'll run into someone prattling on about fate. And it drives me mad. The idea of fate is nothing more than laziness. There are causes behind events. They might be hard to find, but there are always causes. And sometimes explaining them can be difficult. Sometimes it takes time. But if you really want to know what happened and understand the why of history, rather than just the basic focus you get in high school, you know, the dates and names, well, then you have to take that time. So, if you've learned anything from the hundreds of episodes of the BHP that you've listened to, I hope it's this. Fate isn't a thing. Dig for the causes. In doing that, you'll learn the real lessons of these events. And you'll also find history, and life in general, much more satisfying. But let's get back to this fleet. 250 ships are hard to miss. But they're also unwieldy. And the shores of Britain have been a graveyard for fleets in the past. I'm sure there were crews who were wary of the shores that had destroyed so many fleets. But the Danes successfully navigated the waters of the estuary at Limpne, and they began making their way deeper into the dense woods of Andred. But they weren't able to go all that far, not at first. See, they reached one of Alfred's famed burrs, and it was called Erthburnen, and it's now thought to be Castle Toll, in New Ending, Kent. And the Danes have probably been hearing rumors of this West Saxon king's defenses, of how this Alfred had managed to bring down mighty Guthrum with little more than a warband and a swamp. And now that he was back on the throne, he was turning his kingdom into a fortress that was specifically designed to fight Danes. The rumors of Alfred and what he had done with Wessex would have been terrifying to hear. It might have been why the Danes had largely abandoned raiding these lands and only returned when they had a fleet of 250 ships, complete with horses. But they're here now, and at Erthburnen, they got their first glimpse of what this Anglo-Saxon king had been up to. A half-built fort with walls made largely out of earth and barely anyone on hand to defend it. This was laughable. And the Danes quickly stormed the Burr and killed the few people who were left inside to defend it. So was this what Alfred was building? It wasn't a fortress. It was barely a speed bump. And where was Alfred's great standing army? Standing on the muddy walls of Erthburnen, the Danes probably found some humor in it, realizing that they'd been played. They had been expecting Paris. 
But what they discovered was that despite Alfred's reforms, the West Saxons weren't a nation of warriors and fortresses. They were the same farmers they'd always been, and their so-called forts were pathetic. And here's why I'm so certain that the fleet was unimpressed by Aerith Burnin. They didn't even bother retaining possession of it. After its defenders, who actually were probably just builders, were killed, the fleet moved on to Appledore, near Romney Marsh, and there they began constructing their own fortress. You can practically see them grinning smugly at how easy this was going to be. If they hadn't already had an eye on conquest, I imagine they started to consider finishing the job that Guthrum had started. Wessex was fertile, it was temperate, and its people were ideal slaves. Maybe, after over a decade of raiding, it was time to set down some roots. Meanwhile, to the north of Kent, in the Thames estuary, another fleet appeared. This one consisted of 80 ships, and they beached in the marshes of Middletonna, which is now known as Milton Regis. They were right across the swale of the Isle of Sheppey, the same island that had been plundered by a different group of Vikings decades earlier. But this time, they weren't going to be content with simply overrunning Sheppey's Minster. This time, they had bigger plans, and they had the right leader to make them possible. Leading this fleet was a man named Haston. Now, this was a figure who inspired such fear and awe that by the time the histories were written on him, he had passed into legend. Historians find it nearly impossible to separate the man from the myth when it comes to Haston. And as a consequence, he's a figure who has much in common with Ragnar Lothbrok. There was likely a man who began the legends. But whether all the stories attributed to him were the same man and whether all the stories were true, is another matter entirely. But, if we are to assume that Haston was all the same man, then the leader of this fleet was a guy who had spent the last two decades laying waste to the continent. He was a veteran of countless campaigns. He was cunning, merciless, and he had learned the intricacies of his enemy's culture, and how to exploit it. He was a leader in the model of a young Guthrum, Savvy enough to know when to make an oath, and ruthless enough to know when to break it. And his army was sitting about 30 kilometers away from where the fleet of 250 ships had constructed their fortress. Combined, these two fleets consisted of 330 ships, and somewhere between 3,000 and 10,000 seasoned warriors mounted on horseback. If they had come in the larger ships some of which could carry as many as 70 warriors, and if they had come without any horses, we could be potentially looking at nearly 20,000 warriors in a fleet of that size. But given the fact that we're told that they brought their horses and equipment, three to 10,000 seems much more likely. But that's still a huge army, and consequently, it was a huge problem for the West Saxons. However, it would be a mistake to think of these two fleets as a single army. Some authors have given this impression over the years, and many times, in an attempt to spice things up, this attack has been presented as a large-scale coordinated strike, and a few authors have even used the modern military term, pincer attack. But Abel's and others have taken issue with that, and for good reason. For an effective pincer attack, you need lines of communication to coordinate your attacks, and there were dozens of miles of marsh and dense woods that lay between Haston and the bulk of the fleet. 
a true pincer offensive simply would not be possible. The more likely situation here is that we have two separate armies that had a common purpose, but who were also unable to coordinate their attacks in any meaningful way. And thus, they weren't a single army, nor were they carrying out a pincer attack. But that niggling detail aside, what had landed in Kent was an existential threat to King Alfred, and he was suddenly faced with a two-front war. If he mustered his forces and marched on Haston, that would leave the force at Appledore free to pillage the countryside, and possibly even oust him from power like Guthrum had done at Chippenham. But if he mustered his forces and marched on Appledore, then Haston can move up the Thames to London, seize the city, and then raid the countryside, and potentially oust him from power. Alfred had a serious problem on his hands with these two armies, and his first task was to prevent them from having any sort of easy contact. If they could start talking to each other and coordinate, then this fight would get a lot worse. So he activated his own army, and he positioned them in the burrs around and between the two forces in Kent. The reality was that Aerith Burnin had been slow to construct, and actually Asser had written about this exact problem, that some within Wessex, lulled by the prolonged peace, had ignored the demands placed upon them by Alfred, and failed to prioritize building their defenses. And Aerith Burnin was one such place, and consequently they had paid a price for it. But many shires within Wessex had answered the king's call. And as a consequence, the countryside between Milton Regis and Appledore was peppered with fully functioning burrs and the armed soldiers who held them. It was inevitable that any Danish messengers and any foraging parties who were sent out by the Viking fortress would eventually come into contact with the surrounding West Saxon military units. The West Saxons were everywhere. And while they couldn't stop all of the Viking raiding parties, especially since the Danes were mounted. These burrs presented enough resistance that the fleet stayed encamped at Milton Regis and Appledore. It quickly became clear that the conquest of Wessex wouldn't be an easy task. And those rumors were true. Wessex had fortified. The whole country had been turned into a network of military positions. But containment would only work for so long against these Danes. And frankly, it was only partially working. Alfred's strategy simply could not stop all of the raiding parties, especially since he was dealing with two separate fronts. So what he needed to do was turn a two-front war into a one-front war. And the easiest way to do that was to replicate what he had done to pacify Guthrum. He needed to buy one of the armies off and make them Christian. The obvious choice was the smaller army. They were in the weaker position, having probably only between 800 and 2,500 men, and that was minuscule compared to the army of Wessex. So consequently, it probably would be easier to buy them off. And if they refused, they'd be easier to break. Milton Regis wasn't exactly that defensible. And then, once that was done, Alfred could turn and focus the full might of Wessex on the larger fleet at Appledore. So a messenger was sent to Haston to inform him that King Alfred the Great of Wessex and Elderman Athelred of Mercia wanted to meet with him and discuss terms for peace. And here's where we run into a little bit of a problem. See, the Chronicle is our main source for what was happening with this war. 
and it looks like this was the same time that the Chronicle was actually being written. In fact, it's thought it was written shortly after the conclusion of the war, and then continued to be updated, but this was where the bulk of it was put down. And consequently, the details in the Chronicle suddenly got a lot more verbose and focused during this period. And that's great, but it also comes with a cost. Because since the scribes were writing things down right now, we have to keep in mind that they probably knew far too well that the king was reading what they were writing. And thanks to his new courtly school, he didn't even need Asser to read it out loud to him. He could just read the chronicle himself. And as a result of that, this part of the chronicle seems to exhibit evidence that there was a certain degree of censorship happening. And this particular meeting is a prime example of that. I'll get to why later on, but here's how bad it is. This meeting between Haston, Athelred of Mercia, and King Alfred isn't even directly mentioned in the Chronicle. Instead, we have to reconstruct it from other side comments for other years. The scribes never directly mentioned what happened. We don't even know where they met. But thankfully, we've had a lot of scholars working on this. And here's generally what is thought to have occurred. The messengers would have been sent to impress upon Haston the power of Alfred, and also of the Christian God. They also would have carried an offer of peace. Accept the baptism, convert to our ways and rule in our style, and leave these lands in peace, and I will give you gifts and allow you and your men safe passage. It was essentially the same deal that was offered to Guthrum. And like Guthrum, Haston agreed. Now, given the fact that Wessex was at war and currently had another enemy a few dozen miles away, common sense would dictate that they would need to carry out this ceremony somewhere secure, rather than in a river like they'd done with Guthrum. Furthermore, this Haston was an unknown quantity, and Alfred was a cautious man, and he had been burned by these pagans in the past. So he knew that if this was going to work, he needed to impress upon Haston the power of Wessex. And the best location for that, which also happened to be within close proximity to Haston's fortress, was the city of London. The Roman walls there had been recently constructed, which had the potential of inspiring awe into these pirates. And if that failed, having Alfred's personal guard, complemented by Athelred of Mercia's guard and the guard of London would certainly show Wessex's military chops. Under that pressure, the hope was that Haston would see reason and realize that his best option was to uphold his oath and leave Wessex in peace. So Haston arrived with his family, and they held an enormous ceremony. The baptism would have had all the pomp and circumstance necessary to impress upon them the power of God. Now, we're not sure if Haston and his wife were baptized at London, and the reason why is because we don't know whether or not they'd already been baptized, and rebaptism really wasn't a necessary thing. But if they hadn't been baptized, this would have been carried out at this point, probably at Alfred's own hand. But what we do know is that Alfred stood as godfather to one of Haston's children, and Elderman Athelred of Mercia stood as godfather to the other child. The family of Alfred and the family of Haston were now spiritually united. And next came politics. Haston swore oaths of peace and handed over hostages to secure that peace. 
and Alfred responded as a giver of rings should. He bestowed upon Haston luxurious gifts, and thus peace was obtained. For Alfred, the ceremony, the baptisms, and the gifts secured peace between Haston and Wessex, and he was likely relieved to see Haston mobilize his forces and leave the encampment that they had built in Kent. The problem, though, was that for Haston, this was nothing more than a particularly fancy Danegeld. Last week, he was trapped at Milton Regis, wondering what to do next. But now, now he was the recipient of a lot of gifts. And this Saxon was giving him the right to withdraw his forces, and he was paying him for the privilege. Great. And so Haston did as he was asked. He loaded his ships, and he sailed across the Thames estuary to a far more defensible location, Benfleet, Essex. And from there, his forces continued to carry out their raids on Wessex. Alfred's heart must have sank. And suddenly, the fact that the scribes got really quiet about the baptism and peace talks starts to make a lot more sense, doesn't it? This was an abject failure. Against all odds, Alfred's attempts at diplomacy had actually made the situation worse. Now he had two armies threatening his kingdom, and they were on either side of the Thames, which further splintered his defensive lines. Furthermore, whereas Haston was isolated in northern Kent, now he was sitting on the edge of East Anglia. Now, if this had been three years ago, that wouldn't have been much of an issue because Guthrum was an ally. But things had changed. And now, there was a new king of East Anglia. And Alfred couldn't really be sure how this new king Eric of East Anglia would respond if Haston sought allies for his fight against Wessex. So he leapt into action. And West Saxon messengers were immediately dispatched to East Anglia. And, perhaps showing how nervous he was at the possibility of facing a multi-kingdom invasion of Danes, they were also sent to Northumbria, now known as the Kingdom of Jorvik and the messengers were sent to ask them both for oaths of peace. Now that alone was an unusual move, but he went a step farther in the case of East Anglia. Alfred wanted hostages to ensure that the peace would remain, and there was no other way to look at this. Alfred was desperate, and that would have been plain for all to see. Furthermore, historically, this had not worked out in his favor in the past. These Danes had repeatedly demonstrated that they really didn't care all that much about the hostages they provided. And Alfred really didn't need to look all that far back to see an example of that. The peace agreement that Alfred struck with Haston had been secured with hostages. And despite that, Haston just moved his army over to Essex and continued raiding. The Danes didn't care about hostages. So, of course... East Anglia provided six hostages that were requested, but all that really did was demonstrate to King Eric of East Anglia that Wessex was weak and nervous. But, you know, sometimes life comes at you fast, and in a few short months, Alfred had learned some really hard but important diplomatic lessons. All of that ceremony, all of those gifts were for nothing. Even the hostages didn't matter. None of that had dissuaded or slowed down Haston. To the contrary, all Alfred did was strengthen Haston's position. He'd been outplayed. But by seeing this counterexample, Alfred had realized what pacified Guthrum 
and it wasn't the glory of God. It wasn't the power of the baptismal font. It was military power. Guthrum didn't stand down until he saw the power of Alfred, and perhaps the Christian God, on the battlefield. Alfred and Athelred would have to show these new Danes the power of Wessex. But for the first time since his brother died, Alfred wasn't the sole member of the House of Wessex heading to war. Edward had grown up. He was now 22 or 23, about the same age that Alfred was when he fought at Ashdown. It was time for the heir of the throne to Wessex to step out from his father's shadow. So Edward was placed in command of a mobile fyrd in Surrey, and he was tasked with defending these lands from the Viking threat coming out of Appledore. It was clear that Haston didn't fear the power of Wessex, or their god. He would need to be educated. All of these Vikings needed to be educated. And for the House of Wessex, that was a family tradition. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities by looking in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>